Any moms and, and wives in the room? Yeah, a couple of y'all, good. I see like three hands, that's good. Um, this scenario might sound familiar, right? You have those weeks when your kids are out of school and that's when they stop taking their meds and they're out of control and they're throwing markers in the laundry that you've been working hard to get clean and that just happens to be the same week that your husband's working late every day. So Friday rolls around and you think you might kill your kids but instead you turn the clocks ahead and tell them it's actually eight when it's six and you put them in bed. And you decide, hey, my husband, even though he hasn't been here all week, he is working hard for the family, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make him a delicious meal. And so you get on Pinterest, and you find the thing that you've been pinning, and you're doing paleo, because it's New Year's, and you make the meal, and you're so excited for him to come home, and eight o'clock comes, and he's not quite there, and finally he rolls in at 9.30, and you're like, babe, are you hungry? I made you dinner. And he's like, oh, babe, I grabbed burgers with the guys, um, and I'm now gonna go change and go work out so I can burn off these calories. And then he gets close to you, and he's like, what's that smell? It smells terrible. And you're like, hmm. And then he gives you that kiss on the forehead, but not like the sweet one, you know, like the like, uh, one where your head like jerks back and he's walking away from you. He's like, love you, babe. And you're like, love you. <laughs> right? Or how many, how many singles in the room? Yeah? Yeah, right here. And y'all know there's a code of conduct for singles. You do not borrow your roommate's clothes until she has worn it. Am I right, ladies? And if you violate that code, that is grounds for dismissal. And so... How many of us have that roommate, right, where we're out of town and she sees that new J. Crew dress that we're excited about that we had planned for a certain event and she takes it out of the closet and cuts the tags off and you know she knows she shouldn't have done that. And she goes to that party and the guy you've been crushing on is there and she can't help the fact she's charming. She can't help the fact she's winsome and she can't help the fact that she's telling all of you this as she's getting ready to go out on the date with him that she's happened to wrangle herself into. And so she goes to the door and she's like, by the way, I spilled on your dress and it's in my laundry, it's been there all week. And she says, I love you. And you say, I love you. And then she closes the door and you're like, I hate you, right? We've all been there, right? Because the truth is our love is finite. Like we get to that point where you're like, I think I love you. I'm not entirely sure though. Like you are pushing the absolute boundaries of my love for you. So you might want to get away from me, right? But where that gets dangerous is sometimes we think that's how God feels about us. Sometimes we think that God looks at us and he says, hey, Nika, you are getting awfully close to that boundary line. And the truth is that it could not be farther from the truth. And so what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna take a look at how God loves us. We are going to not walk through the Old Testament. We are going to zip line through the Old Testament. We are gonna go rather quickly and I'm gonna camp out in some certain spots. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the way that God loved Israel. And we're gonna take all the truth that we gather from that and we're gonna smack it down on the New Testament for you and me and see how God loves us. And my hope is, is that you'll realize that God loves us unconditionally. My hope is you'll walk away from here encouraged and if not fully convinced of it, maybe just a little bit more convinced that God is crazy about you and especially me. So (laughs) we'll start where any story begins in the beginning. God creates the heaven and the earth. The creator of the universe creates man and they walk in perfect harmony. They're in the garden and everything's going well. And then Adam and Eve do what we all know we would have done had we been there. And he says, you can do whatever you want. Just don't eat that tree. And they do the one thing he says don't do. And suddenly that perfect relationship that God and man enjoyed together is fractured. And the rest of the Bible is God making a way to come towards humanity to move us back into Eden. Spoiler alert, in the end, we're back in a garden, okay? So when you get to Revelation, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But yeah, God is spending the rest of his time making a way to come back to humanity because humanity chose to fracture that relationship. 
And so then God visits a man named Abram. He gives him a new name, Abraham. And Abraham had many sons and they went down to Egypt and came enslaved. That's how the song should really go. And so they go down to Egypt and God's like, hey, I haven't forgotten my covenant with you. I just need you down here for a while. And then the Israelites become you know, wealthy and they begin to prosper in the land. And like most of the time we see in history when a minority group begins to prosper, the majority group comes over the top and begins to persecute them. And so Israel enters into persecution. And for 400 years, they're under the persecution of Egypt. And then God says, okay, I've heard their cry. I remember my people. I'm going to come get them. And so he sends Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Y'all didn't know you were coming to a musical, right? <laughs> Callie, how come you never asked me to be in the, in the choir? We'll talk about that later. And so, yeah, so he sends Moses in and they do all of the plagues and then they do the Passover and they come out and they go through the Red Sea and God does these amazing things. And then he comes to the people and this is where we're gonna camp out for a second in Exodus 19. And God comes to them and he says, hey, listen, I wanna be your God. I wanna be your God and I want you to be my people. And we start out and we look at the verses in Exodus 19.3 and I'm gonna read on. It says, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And God says, thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I lifted you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession. Out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to Israel, Moses. So Moses is like, okay, I'm gonna go to the people and ask them. God is making a pretty important invitation here. If you get this Evite, click yes. And so he comes to him and Moses says, okay, let me go. Let me get all the elders of Israel. Hey, guys, come together. And starting in verse seven, so Moses came, summoned the elders of Israel. He said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And Moses brought these words of the people back to the Lord. And so what is happening here? Don't miss this. This is called the Mosaic Covenant. God is entering into relationship with this nation. He's saying out of all the nations and all the land, I'm choosing you to be mine. Would you like to be mine? He's inviting them. He's not forcing them. He asks them quite politely, would you like to be my people? And they say, yes. And so God, not wanting to be like the used car salesman, when you sign on the dotted line, he's like, hey, you bought the car, but not the tires. Now we gotta negotiate for that. God's not like that. So instead in chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, in the beginning of 24, God lays out what it'll look like to be his people. He goes to Israel and he goes, I wanna be very clear with all of you what this will look like. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments. And he says, you'll be set apart. You will be special. You will be different. I will walk with you and you will walk with me. I am giving you an invitation unlike any other invitation. I'm not offering it to the Canaanites. I'm not offering it to other people groups. It's only for you. Would you like to be my people? And in one of the greatest moments in Israel's history, in chapter 24, they say, yeah, that's a good choice. And so in verse eight of chapter 24, they kill a bunch of animals and that's what you do to make covenant. We don't do that anymore, so don't kill anybody or anything. And they make covenant. And what happens is God and Israel become one. He makes covenant with them. And they are supposed to look differently and they're supposed to act differently. And you begin to wonder, so how did they do? Not great. 
Not great. We leave Exodus, we get to the end of Exodus and God says, hey, go into the land where I've sent you. He sends 12 spies in there. He says, how does the land look? Do you think we can take them? Remember, I'm the God of the universe. Remember, I split the Red Sea. Remember, I took out Egypt. Remember, I'm the big guy upstairs. I am with you. Do you think we can take the land? And all but two go, "Uh uh-uh. And so God sends the people and he says, hey, you guys can't go into the land, I'm sorry. So you gotta wander around in numbers and they wander around the desert and there's all kinds of rebellion and they're, they're beginning to forget the covenant they made with God and they're getting farther and farther and farther away from Mount Sinai. And so then they finally take over the land and they're supposed to clear out the entire land and they don't do that. And so they have the period of the judges and it's up and down and up and down. And sometimes they're doing well, but most of the time they're rebelling and they keep forgetting. God told them, you're gonna look different. You're gonna act different. You're gonna be my people and there are rules that you need to obey. And they're getting farther and farther and farther away from that. And because they don't clear out the land, they decide we want a king. So the Israel cries out to God and says, hey God, we want a king. And he says, you don't want a king. I'm your king. Remember, creator of the universe, with the breath of my mouth, I gave life. I created all of this. You see the stars in the universe, the oceans, the expanse, everything. I'm your king. You're my people. You're my nation. I'm your king. And they say, no, we want a king. And so he gives them king. And he gives them the desires of their heart. And they have Saul, and Saul's a wicked king. And so then God brings David around, and he's like, hey, this is my guy. And we know that David is a man after God's own heart, but he is still a man. And he has a moment when he looks over, and he sees some fine honey, and he's like, bring her. So he brings Bathsheba and they do stuff I can't talk about. And um, then David never quite recovers, right? So Israel's history is like this throughout the Old Testament. They're up, they're down, they're far. And the whole time they're forgetting their covenant. They're forgetting their first love. And so then Solomon comes into power after David and Solomon is, is very wise and very wealthy, but when it comes to living rightly before the Lord, he doesn't do a great job. And then Solomon, because he creates chaos, his sons come into power and they split the kingdom, which was never God's design. And you got Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And again, we're getting farther and farther and farther away from Sinai. Scripture tells us in 1 Kings and Chronicles, there's not a single good king in the north, not one. And there's only a handful in the South, one of which is King Josiah. He comes into power when he's eight years old. And it was written in the law that every king should have his own copy of the first five books of the Bible. And when Josiah comes into power, he discovers a book called the Torah, the first five books, and he begins reading it and he realizes, oh my gosh, we've forgotten Sinai. So he rents his clothes, which is to say he begins to grieve and he reinstates many of the laws that God had intended. But scripture also tells us that really the only heart that it changed was Josiah's. This tells you how far from Sinai they've gotten. They've gotten so far away that when they read the Bible, they didn't recognize it. They've forgotten Sinai. And so then what happens is God has to come to them and send the prophets. And this is where we're gonna camp out for a little bit. He sends the prophets because he wants to try and get them back to Sinai. And there's three big truths that we're gonna glean out of the prophets tonight. Three big messages that we're gonna see in them. And the first one is this, is that the message is very emotive and they come to him and they say, Israel, North, Judah, South, you're a whore. And some of you were like, oh, she can't say that. But I can, because it's in the Bible. And so, yeah, the, the language is emotive. The language is raw. And when I first read that, I was like, Lord, why, why whore? I mean, certainly Israel has sinned against you and certainly many of their sins were of the sexual sort, but why not just you wayward people or why not just you disobedient people? Why such emotive, raw language? 
And it's because God is trying to demonstrate to them that their sin against God is like that of a woman who sins against her husband. He calls her a whore. He calls her a wayward wife. He calls her a harlot. It's personal. He's not some far off deity with a set of rules that you have to comply to. And when you don't, he's like a taskmaster waiting to smack them around. That's not how God relates to his people. Instead, he says, I'm your husband. You're my wife. I love you. We're in covenant like a husband and wife are in covenant. You're not just sinning against some unknown God. You're sinning against your first love. You are whoring yourself out. Perhaps the most evocative language that we see in the prophets comes from Ezekiel 16. And if you've never read it, I encourage you to do so, but only if you're above the age of 17 or you have adult supervision between the ages of 13 and 17. Because it's raw. And it starts out, and and God's using allegory, and he's talking about Israel. He says, Israel, I came to you, and I, I saw that you'd been cast out by your Canaanite parents. Your mom, the Amorites, and your dad, the Hittite, they didn't love you, and they cast you out into a field, and you were still covered in amniotic fluid. You were still covered in blood. Nobody had cut your umbilical cord. Nobody loved you. You were a castaway. And this was a common practice during this time. If you didn't love your child, if you didn't want your child, you just tossed them in the field and left them to die. Either the animals would get them, the elements would get them, or they'd just cry and starve themselves to death. And God says, Israel, you were that child. But I walked along and I saw you. I called out to you and I said, breathe, live. And I washed you. I washed you clean and I gave you clothing. I loved you. I brought you into my home. And when you became an age that you were appropriate and you were beautiful, I I put my garment over you, which is to say that I wed myself to you. And you were my wife and I gave you everything. I gave you, I gave you beauty and riches and everything. And your splendor was wonderful. And he says, but your beauty went to your head and you began to whore yourself out. And he talks about all the sins that she had committed against him. And he says, you know what's worse? And this is where, I mean, he ratchets it up. He says, at least a prostitute gets paid. You whore yourself out for free. In fact, you take what I have given you and you pay others to defile you. This language is raw. It is emotive. It is a husband loving his wife. That's how God loved Israel. He wasn't some principal sitting in the office and doesn't have a relationship with you and finds out from somebody else you've disobeyed. He's not some angry dad who kicks in the door and doesn't know anything about your life but is there with the belt because mom tattled on you. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve entered covenant with Israel and said, I am your husband and you are my wife and when you sin against me, it's personal, it's relational. And so you expect point number two to be Get out. But if the first point of the prophets is that, Israel, you are sinning against a personal God, the second point is this, is that he still tells them to come back. Over and over and over again in scripture, he says, repent. That word repent from the Hebrew, it's shuv. And if you were to go to Israel today and you were to watch a a husband and a wife with their children playing and they're on the playground, they get a little too far away, they would go shuv, shuv come back. It implies there's something to come back to. God's first message is you are an adulterous wife. And his second message is, but I still love you. Come back to me. I mean, imagine this. Your husband kicks in the door, sees you in bed naked with another man. And you expect him to say, you whore, get out of my house. I want a divorce. You disgust me. You're filth. 
That is not what our God does. Instead, he looks at Israel and he says, hey, come back to me. I still love you. Come back to me. The first message is, Israel, when you sin, you sin like a wife sins against a husband. And the second message is come back. Then the third message is this, is he says, I know you won't, and so I will make a way. He kicks in the door, and he looks at his wife, and he says, I still love you, and I'm begging you to come back. I still love you. I never took off this ring. You're my wife, but I know you won't come to me, so I will come to you. That is crazy love. And we see this in Jeremiah 31. And the beginning of Jeremiah is God taking the prophet Jeremiah and they're laying against the people all of their sins, all of their wicked ways, all of their adulterous doings, every sin that could be laid against them, there's a catalog of it and it's filthy and it's disgusting. And then in Jeremiah 31, and starting in verse 31, he says this, but indeed a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within, their, within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me, for all of them from the least important to the most important will know me. Don't miss this. For I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong that they have done. That's how God loved Israel. He made covenant with them at Sinai. He, he, didn't, he didn't bait and switch them. He didn't say, hey, look, I want you to sign on the dotted line and then you didn't know what you were getting into, so now here's the Ten Commandments. No, he came to them and said, hey, look, you're gonna be different. Do you want in? And they cry out in unison, we will do all that you ask us to do. And they don't. See, if God had been in contract with Israel, right? He'd say, hey, I'm gonna make a contract with you. I'm gonna give you this. If you give me this, and then we'll be in contract and we'll shake hands, but that's not how God loves, right? If I made contract with Lucina, I was like, Lucina, you gotta come to my house and clean it and then I'm gonna pay you and I get home and it's still filthy. I'm like, Lucina, no money for you. And I know she would do something like that. She's shady. <laughs> that's not how God loves. Instead, he looks at Lucina, he looks at me, he looks at Israel, and he says, hey, you didn't do what I asked you to do, but it's okay. I still love you. Yeah, I'm going to call you a whore, <laughs> but it's because I want you to understand how I love you. I don't say you're a disappointing wife. I don't call you a failure. I say you're an adulterous woman, but in the midst of that, I ask you to come back to me. And I know you won't, so I'll come to you. So we take all of this, all of this Old Testament theology on how God loves Israel, and we smack it down in the New Testament. Or in, in the New Testament is this, is that the New Testament that he spoke of, the new covenant, that is Jesus Christ. We just celebrated his birthday. Jesus Christ is the way. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose for your sins, then you are in covenant with God in the same way that Israel was in covenant with God. And that matters. As New Testament believers, we're not in contract. We don't sign on the dotted line. We are in covenant with God. And so there are three big truths that we've got to get out of that. If we're truly in covenant with God, then the first one is this, is that you can't earn it. You can't. 
God didn't come to Israel and go, hey, you can be my people if you'll do this or that or whatever. You gotta do a little jig and put on a performance. You gotta dress a certain way, act a certain way. That came after. He's saying, look, if you believe, then you are saved. If you believe, then you are saved. And what we like to do is if I believe and then obey and then I'll be saved. Or if I believe and I never stray, then I'll be saved. Or if I clean my whole act up and then I believe, then I'll be saved. And what I'm trying to tell you is it's this. If you believe, you've satisfied your portion of the covenant and we're waiting on God to satisfy his and he cannot be unfaithful. He wasn't with Israel. You cannot earn it. You cannot, and that is a great hope to us. I think part of why we need to recharge is because we spend so much of our life toiling and working after things that God freely gives us. He welcomes you to the banquet and you're out selling things and working hard and doing all that to pay for your seat and he's looking at you going, it's free, just come in. You are all welcome at God's table and there's nothing you have to do to earn that. The second part is this, is that once you're in, you're in forever. So many times we think we're like the scenario, right, where I said earlier that we think we can run out of God's love. We think that we've gotten to a point where we've sinned this far and God only lets us go this far and we've crossed that imaginary line that we make up because the enemy tells us that and it's just not true. I know this because I look back at Israel and go, if she wasn't disqualified, holy smokes. And some of you are going, no, I might be able to give Israel a run for her money. And I said, great, he still loves you. He still loves you. I know that because scripture tells me he'll leave the 99 and go after the one. And when he gets her, oh, he rejoices. The whole heavens do. And he considers you worthy to go after And so many times I hear this, Nike, you don't understand. I'm an adulterer. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a pornographer. I'm codependent. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. And I'm here to tell you, it's not about you. It's about him and what he's done for you. This is why you can't lose his love because it was never based on you. It's always been based on his love for you. When you say, I believe, in essence, you say, I do, and you wedge yourself to a God who cannot be unfaithful. It is outside of his character. So in the same way that he kicked in the door for Israel and he saw her in bed with another man, he said, come back to me. He does the same for you over and over and over again. There is no limit to his love. There is no capacity. There is no place you could go. You cannot escape his love. If you wanted to, you couldn't. His love is bigger, greater, deeper, wider than any sin you will ever commit. And not because you are great, but because his love is greater. He loves you. He's crazy about you. Don't miss that. And the third truth is this, and this might be the hardest one for us to swallow, is that I ask a lot of women at Watermark, do you know that God loves you? And I think many of you, because you're theologically sound and we have the privilege of worshiping in a church that teaches us well. We have a women's Bible study on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Um, I ask you though, if God's pleased with you. And many of you go, I don't know about that. Like I know he loves me because he sent his son. Like I know he loves me because I've got that equation down. I know he loves me because you drew the bridge and there was a big heart and somebody convinced me at Canicuck and I rang the bell. I know God loves me. (laughs) 
true story. When I was 19 years old, I worked at Canica K2, woo woo. And uh, there was a girl in leadership who um, was outpacing everybody in integrity and purity and vocal cords. And it was Callie Nixon. And I remember being 19 years old and thinking, someday I'd love to do an event with her. Y'all, I'm 29 years old, 10 years. And Callie finally wore down after I begged her and begged her and begged her. So I got you, I got you. I hate it when I go off script. I have to come back to the podium. I'm just kidding, I know where I'm at. Guys, I learned today that you can pay somebody to draw on your eyebrows, so it's kind of a big day for me. Uh, I didn't have these before three o'clock, so I know y'all have been thinking it. I'm just gonna help you out. But yeah, the truth is many of you know that God loves you, but you don't know that he's pleased with you. And I wanna show you, I wanna remind you, first of all, Jeremiah 31, where he says, I will call, I will no longer remember their sin and I will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. That's how he loves us. That's, that's what we get being on this side of the cross. And I think so many times we imagine ourselves like he, if he's our husband and we're his bride, like I think the visual we get is we're in our wedding dress because we know we're gonna get married. We know that like our theology is good enough to say, I know he loves me. I know his love will persist, but we think it's tattered. We think it's stained. We think it's ratted out. We spend all of our time trying to clean it and we look at him going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that's not how God looks at us. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is a big section that talks about husbands loving their wives and wives submitting. I said the S word, you can email me later. And so much of that topic is spent on how husbands and wives should obey. And that, and, and that is perfectly acceptable. But in the midst of it, the basis upon which we do all of that, the reason why we get married, the reason why we do anything is so that we can reflect to a lost and dying world how God loves us. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because that's how Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because that's how Jesus submitted to God. There's a huge Christology. And if you miss that, you're gonna miss the whole purpose of marriage. But right smack dab in the middle of it, do not miss these verses. Starting in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but she's holy and blameless. That is you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is you. You are holy and blameless. I think so many times we imagine God having this like interstellar conversation and we're standing over here and we imagine we're in some tattered dress and the enemy's just prowling around. God, look at that woman. I see that woman. Did you know she's a whore? I know she's done some things. Do you know that she can't love her kids unless she's opening up a bottle of wine? I know she's struggling. Do you know that she takes her computer in her room at night and does things that nobody would like to speak of? I know she struggles. Do you know that she's unworthy in every way of your love? And then God says, you know what, Satan? I've had enough of you because the truth is, is I've washed her and I've made her clean and take another look. You are pure, you are white, you are washed clean. And none of those accusations can stick, none of them. And we do ourselves a disservice by allowing them to. You are perfect because of the blood of God raining down on you. Satan will try to convince you otherwise, but when God looks at you, he is pleased. 
We do this weird thing when we're adults and it's Christmas because our parents don't know what we want anymore. And my mom still thinks I'm a kid's 14, 16. Husky, you know what I'm talking about? And so your parents come to you and they go, what would you like for Christmas? And you go, I would like these boots. And they say, great, we will wrap them and put them under the tree. So on Christmas, you're like, oh, what we picked out at Thanksgiving. But that's the perfect example of what Jesus is doing here because the truth is you get exactly what you want on Christmas. These have OU on them. I don't want y'all to miss that. I know it was a mediocre season, but sooner born, sooner bred, when I die, sooner dead. This is exactly what Jesus does. Did you catch that in the verses? He presents us to himself. We're, we're the perfectly wrapped gift that he wants. He goes out into the world and he says, I can have everything. I'm God. What do I want most? I want y'all. And not only that, I'm going to wash you and make you clean. You don't need to sit there and try and scrub out your sins. You don't need to remember them anymore because I don't remember them anymore. I've washed you. You're perfect. Not because of anything you've done. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't lose it. None of those things. They're all yours because my son died on the cross and his blood made you white as snow. You are clean. So when I ask you, hey, does God love you? Yeah. Do you think he's pleased with you? Give yourself permission to say yes. Not because it's arrogant. Not because it's presumptuous. Because it's what the Bible says. He washed you clean. And you have no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, the band's going to come up here and sing one last song. And then I'm going to get up here and dismiss you. But as they sing over you, I want you to remember that you are clean. In the same way that God loved Israel, no matter what. That's how God loves you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for a room full of women who would choose to spend their Saturday night uh, learning about you. Who would say, my time is more valuable than catching up on Gilmore Girls on Netflix. My time is more valuable than um, paying that sitter and telling my husband I'm going to recharge, but instead going to Matitos. Instead, women who have said, hey, what is valuable is you. Lord, if I've said anything tonight that would distract from your word, I pray that you would remove it from our mind. And as we sing this song, you would fill them with the understanding and the hope that you love them and you've washed them clean. Father, you are a good God and you give us good gifts. Thank you for making tonight a possibility for us. It's in your perfect, saving, gracious, loving name that I ask these things. Amen. We're studying the book of Mark, shameless plug in Bible study. And this morning I was preparing Mark uh, 14 through 50 with a friend, Whitney, who's here. And we were talking about how the disciples were arguing about where they would be greatest in the kingdom of God. And I think I would rather argue about getting to sit next to Callie in heaven. (laughs) There is something in the water. It's not baptism. It's grace. And it's, it's available to you. This love that we've been talking about and singing about is a love you don't know. You're welcome to it. And we're going to have women down front who would be eager to talk to you.
If this is a love that you've forgotten about, you had your Mount Sinai moment, but, but you've wondered, then, then come down here and get encouraged. Thank you all for giving us your time. I pray that you'd be blessed the rest of the night. As Todd would say, enjoy your week of worship, but actually enjoy your JD's cookies. But friends, <laughs> be encouraged. You are loved and cared for in this church, but greater than that, you are loved and cared for by a good God. Thanks for coming.